Like the vast majority of the congregation today, I have only ever lived under the reign of one monarch here in the United Kingdom, that of our late Queen Elizabeth II. She had a remarkable reign, really, the longest reigning monarch in British history. Born in 1926, succeeded to the throne in 1952, celebrating her platinum jubilee in June of this year, 70 years as monarch. From a boy, I was taught to respect, uh, indeed to revere Her Majesty. We take that term in Northern Ireland very lightly, loyalism, and I'm a loyalist. There are few, I think, in Northern Ireland who take that name, who really know the import of it. My mother and my grandmother uh, would never have allowed a negative word to be spoken about the Queen in our home. Her picture, of course, was given pride of place. And over the years, I suppose, there was so much useless commercial, commercial royal memorabilia collected. It was everywhere in the home. But her words were also carefully listened to. I remember from earliest years as a family that on Christmas Day uh, we listened to her broadcast on the wireless. Way back then, boys and girls, there was no internet, there was no television, and so there's a big brown box that sat up above the stove in the kitchen where we, where we lived, and we called it the wireless. It was an amazing thing because it talked out to us and it brought to us uh, the Queen's message every year. And then, of course, when we got up a little bit, I, there was no TV in our home until I was about nine or ten. <clears throat> and so when we got up a little bit, when it was on the TV, it was still religiously followed. I can never understand as a child why my parents, why my grandparents were so intent on listening uh, to what she had to say. Uh, I would have thought it would have been more fun to play with the toys that you got at Christmas or just to relax after your Christmas dinner. But in our house, it had to be finished and over for the Queen's speech. Growing up into my own adult years, I began to understand why the older generation, my parents, my grandparents, my aunts, my uncles, they, they paid so much attention and showed so much respect to what she had to say. Uh, and year on year, just just like them, we tuned in and listened to what she had to say. I suppose I'm like the most of you also. I've never personally met the Queen. I only went once to see the Queen, we queued all day. Some of you, I think, were there too in Stormont some years ago to see her in person. And it was all over in about 20 seconds as she drove past. Unsurprisingly, she was not perfect. Nor was her family. And as we look into our own lives, we, we realise nor are our families perfect, nor are we perfect. And yet this uh, lady... Uh, grew more and more in my own admiration. It has been often said over the past week, over the past few days, she was the one public constant figure in our nation. She saw off some 15 different prime ministers. 
She was able to engage with them every week on subjects that range from world affairs to local affairs. And yet she was always there. She, she was that constant. We can't help but admire even those who are not monarchists or even those who are only monarchists with a small M. Nobody could help but admire her dignity and her decorum and her devotion to duty right to the end. And it's not how you start that's important, it's how you end. And she ended well. I think she exemplified what true commitment really was. Even amongst Christian people today, that word commitment, though it is used uh, loosely, it is very, very rarely exemplified as it was in the life of the Queen as she reigned as her sovereign. She exemplified commitment. It has been said she wore a heavy crown and yet she became the servant, the servant of her subjects. And her long reign, I think, is an example of being a servant queen. The Bible Society, to celebrate her 90th birthday, produced a lovely little book. I know some of you do have it. It is entitled, The Servant Queen and the King She Serves. And in the foreword, the, the queen wrote, I have been and remain very grateful to you for your prayers and to God for a steadfast love. I have indeed seen his faithfulness. Many years ago, in 1947, she made that very famous radio broadcast from South Africa to the Commonwealth. She said, I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. But I shall not have strength to carry out this resolution alone unless you join it with me, as I now invite you to do. I know that your support will be unfailingly given. God help me to make good my vow, and God bless all of you who are willing to share it. In her jubilee year, I heard her say that she never regretted making that vow, and by God's grace she had sought to make it good. In those Christmas messages to the nation and to the Commonwealth, listened in by millions of people around the world, the Queen communicated, she communicated her Christianity. I know of no world leader who mentioned the Lord Jesus Christ so frequently, so publicly, as did the Queen. To the millions who listened in, even after the difficult years of the 90s, in her Christmas address of 2000, she said, To many of us, our beliefs are of fundamental importance. For me, the teachings of Christ and my own personal accountability before God provide a framework in which I try to lead my life. I, like so many of you, have drawn great comfort in difficult times from Christ's words. An example. You can go online and read all of her Christmas messages. They're all there for you. In 2011, the Queen in her Christmas message, she said, God sent into the world a unique person. Neither a philosopher nor a general, important though they are, but a saviour. A saviour. 
with power to forgive. And it is my prayer that on this Christmas day we might all find room in our lives for the message of the angels and for the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. In her final Christmas address of last year, uh, she said concerning uh, the, the Christmas story and the life of Christ, she said, the man whose teachings have been handed down from generation to generation have been the bedrock of my faith. This is to the world. This is not in our front parlour, but this is to the world. In August of this year, writing to the gathering of Anglican bishops, she said, the message and the teachings of Christ have been my guide. It is my heartfelt prayer that you will continue to be sustained by your faith in times of trial and encouraged by hope at times of despair. <clears throat> we sang two of the Queen's most favourite pieces this morning. The Lord is my shepherd and praise my soul, the King of heaven. And today, though we mourn her, her passing, I believe we do have good reason to hope that her soul today is praising uh, the King of, of heaven. When I thought of this service, I, I thought of these words in Second Samuel fourteen fourteen. I hadn't realised that was one of the texts that was in the initial statement released by our presbytery on Thursday evening. <clears throat> Last Lord's Day, we thought in the doxology of the Lord's Prayer of praying with eternity in mind. Christ's kingdom. Christ's reign, it can know no ending, forever and ever. Not wonderful. We belong to a kingdom that is forever and ever. But sadly, earthly monarchs have a time limitation. The words of the woman of Tekoa to King David concerning his banished sub Absalom in Second Samuel 14, 14, remind us all, that we are time limited. We are not here forever. And they remind us that there's a day coming when even kings and queens are called to appear before the King of kings and Lord of lords. And this Sabbath morning, I would like to spend a little time investigating this text with you. Because this Sabbath, it's a day of opportunity and grace for you to prepare before the king of kings called you out into his presence. Consider with me firstly the exiled. The, the text take, speaks about those that are exiled. The banished. The banished. This is the state of those that are in rebellion against the king. Absalom had been banished from his father's court because of his rebellion against the king. He had took it into his own hands to organize and plan the murder of his brother Amnon. And this he saw as retribution. This he saw as vengeance for the terrible sin which had been committed against his sister by his brother. But vengeance belongs not to the individual. Vengeance belongs to the king. <coughs> and taking the law into his own hands, he automatically became an outlaw. 
the king's son became an outlaw and he was banished from the land. And now, of course, we, we go back to the Garden of Eden. And the sin of our first parents was nothing more, nothing less than rebellion against the king of kings and lord of lords. God had decreed that Adam and Eve should not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. But they were deceived and deluded by Satan and they partook of that fruit. And then the moment that they partook of that fruit, they sinned and they fell in the first transgression. And they were banished. They were put out of Eden. And they could never get back in again. They were covenant breakers. And as God looks into your heart and my heart today, those that know not the Lord Jesus as their own personal saviour, how does he view us <coughs> as covenant breakers? What a solemn, solemn thought. Absalom's punishment for his sin was exile in a foreign land. This was self-inflicted, just like our, our first parents. I have in my mind's eye those two lonely individuals standing at the gate of the Garden of Eden. And they're about to be launched out into the unknown. From their privileged position in paradise, they've been thrust out now into a world where the ground is cursed and where they must toil. And with the sweat of their brow, they have to earn their living and make their keep before them. Lay a life of uncertainty and behind them the flaming cherubims prevented them from getting back into the garden of Eden. <coughs> and whether you see it that way or not, that's how God says where you are today. God says you are banished. In Ephesians 2 and 12, it's described as being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. When we lived in Kenya, we carried alien cards with us. And the police stopped us regularly on the roads. And you had to produce your alien card to show that I'm not a citizen here. I'm an alien. I'm not of this nationality or this origin. I'm away from my homeland. And what a dreadful place to spiritually find yourself in. An alien from God. Stranger to God. Stranger to the promises of God and the mercies of God. We've been singing about them today. But if you're unconverted, <coughs> they're strange to you because the promises are given uh, to those that are in Christ Jesus. And if you die as you lived, you'll spend an eternity in exile, banished from the presence of God. To be in exile means like Absalom. There's no communication with the king. David saw Absalom no more. He was banished from the king's presence. <clears throat> and it's a frightening thing to be banished from the king's presence in life. No comforter. No guide. What will you do when you come to die? What will you do when those last moments dawn? You've lived without him. And now you'll die without him. And you'll go out into an eternity without him. And you'll be banished from his presence forevermore. If you want to know what that final banishment looks like, just take time at home to read through Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. 
We read 34, 41. Then the king shall say unto them, On his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But to the unconverted, he'll say, Depart from me. That's the final banishment. He cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. We live in a world that's controlled by Satan, who's the God of this world. But let me say to you, those of you today who think that you're walking on the clean side of the broad road, if you die as you have lived without Jesus Christ, you will spend an eternity with Satan and his angels and with the doomed and the damned in hell. What a place of torment. Secondly, consider with me that we're all heading for eternity. This text opens up so tersely. It says, we must needs die. We must needs die. You wouldn't hear me very often quoting Boris Johnson from this pulpit. But I thought his tribute to the Queen in the House of Commons was one of the best, probably that was given on the day. And he said that like children we all thought the Queen was timeless and that she would just keep going on. But none of us are timeless. And the Queen on Thursday of the past week in the place where she loved the most at Balmoral Castle she passed from the presence of her family, her medical team, her servants, her nation into the presence of the great eternal King of kings and Lord of lords. We must needs die. That's a solemn reality. Oh, that God would stamp it on the hearts of all today. Don't live as if you're timeless, for you too must die. This certainty has been appointed by God. God told Adam and Eve in Genesis 2.17, the first mention of death, if you eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt surely die. And Adam believed the devil, and he listened to his wife, who was deluded and deceived, and he partook of that fruit. And we read hundreds of years later in Genesis 5 and 5, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, nearly a millennium, but he died. Very few of us will see 96 years of age. But it doesn't matter what age you'll see. Barring the second coming of Jesus Christ, all of us are going to die. We must needs die. A death, your opportunity to be saved, it all comes to an end because the, the picture here, we must needs die and our life then is like water spilt upon the ground that can't be gathered up again. Life with its opportunities comes to an end. It can't be gathered up again. You can't, re, you can't redo what you have done. You can't gather up what you have lost. People today, even supposedly Protestant people, they write sympathetically to others about loved ones who have passed on, even about Her Majesty, R.I.P. Rest in peace. But if the soul dies 
and that soul did not know peace with God through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll never have peace for all of God's eternity. And your wishes and my prayers for the dead, they mean nothing. They mean nothing. We can't wish anyone out of a lost eternity. We can't wish anyone a peaceful eternity if they've died rejecting the peace of God. In Colossians 1 and 20, we read how that peace can be obtained. We read that having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. That's wonderful. The Lord Jesus, by his death and bloodshedding, he made peace possible uh, through the blood of his cross. We read in Romans 3.23 that God has set him forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Tell me today, have you faith in the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you tell me today, what is the ground and basis of your peace with God? How would you answer? How would you answer today, what is your peace with God? If it's not grounded upon the shed blood of the Lamb, you don't have peace with God. You only have an illusion of peace. You only have an aspiration of peace. It's only those who have faith in the shed blood of Christ to save them, to cleanse them, and to purge away their sin, that they have peace with God. And those who have this peace, the Bible tells us they have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. At that moment of death, Satan and his angels, all the powers of hell itself, can't stop you entering into the very presence, the very holiest place, because we enter in by the blood of Jesus. What is today? Today is a day of mourning. And we can't escape that. But it's a day of opportunity. It's a day of opportunity for you to be saved. How merciful is God? How patient is God? How loving is God? He's given you another day. To close in with his son. Don't waste it. Don't throw it away. Don't cast it behind your back. As we quickly travel to eternity. We have to say death is the great. Uh, death is the great equalizer. Great, death is the great leveler. Of all of us. The text tells us God doth not respect persons. Queen Elizabeth wasn't timeless. We all knew she would have to die. We just didn't think it would be now. But she did. The high and the low, the rich and the poor, the monarch and the beggar. At the end of the day, they all have to die. And that same coffin, though it might be different in quality, It'll do the same job for all of us. And we'll be buried. God does not respect persons. I enjoyed many of the tributes that were paid to the Queen. Very few of them, I think, mentioned her spiritual life. They mentioned matters of state. They mentioned all 
uh, little suggestions former prime ministers of what the Queen might have talked to them about, might have said to them. Those must have been wonderful conversations, really, that the serving prime ministers had with the Queen on a weekly basis. <clears throat> but there was one man in particular, Lib Dem MP, very surprisingly, Tim Farron. Tim Farron, of course, is a professing evangelical Christian. <clears throat> he resigned from his leadership of the Lib Dems because he said he couldn't be a Christian and lead the Liberal Democrats. Now, how he stays as an MP is another matter, but he'll have to answer to that. But I was so blessed by what he said. He said that for a nation, she had been the one constant in our national life. And yet the one constant in her life was her personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is in the House of Commons. He went on to say it was not a perfunctory ceremonial faith, but a living act of faith in a living saviour. And he went on to say, for 70 years we've been singing, God save the Queen. And if her faith was active, and I am certain uh, Mr. Farron said it was, then God has saved the Queen. Think of the thousands, the hundreds of thousands of times that uh, prayer has ascended Almighty God. God save the Queen. Would that loyalists would understand what it is to have a living, active faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A living, active faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can wrap yourself round a, a flag round you. you. You can do that. You can go to all of the celebrations, all of the parades, all of the ceremony uh, that goes with loyalism and Protestantism. But if you, if you die... Without a living act of faith in Jesus Christ, it'll not matter, it'll not matter what sash you wore, what flag you walked under, you'll be lost for eternity, for all eternity. Nothing could be more important. Eternity, men and women. It's just, just one heartbeat away. Notice with me finally, what measures did the king take to exonerate the banished? Because the text references the means to bring back the banished. In ancient Israel, God had devised the means whereby the exiled, the banished, could be brought back. And the means that the woman referred to, many commentators believe it was a reference to the cities of refuge. The cities of refuge were for those who had inadvertently, accidentally killed someone. And they fled to those cities of refuge uh, before the, the families of the deceased would meet up with them and extract vengeance from them. Numbers chapter 35 records what happened to the manslayer when he'd killed someone accidentally, inadvertently, knowing that the next of kin would seek revenge. Now Absalom's vengeance on Amnon was purposed and it was planned. 
But yet there was means, and this woman of Tekoa was alluding to the means whereby the king could bring him back. The king was the law, and he had the means to devise the means to bring him back. In, in Numbers 35, when the man slayer fled, he went to one of the cities of refuge. And those cities of refuge, they were scattered geographically, evenly, all over Israel. The roads to those cities of refuge had to be cleared every year. The signposts were on them. People knew where they were. Access was ready to them. And when he went in to that city of refuge, he was safe. Nobody could touch him. He was safe. Nobody could put a hand upon him. And I want to say to you again today, there's only one place of refuge for you who are unconverted. There's only one place of refuge for the sinner, and that is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not found in him, you're open to the officers of the law and to the vengeance that the law will extract upon you, which is death itself for all of eternity. The Old Testament rules dictated that if the manslayer went to the city of refuge and when the high priest died after the death of the high priest then, he, with all the others who claimed refuge in the cities of refuge, they were free. They could go free. They could go back home. They were clear from further threat. They were exonerated. They were absolved. And isn't it wonderful today that we are exonerated, we are absolved through the death of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Through his death, through his blood shedding, we are exonerated for all eternity. The sins, the claims of the law which are against us, they have been wiped off the book because the, the, the high priest has died. What a picture. Because Jesus, as our great high priest, he came to die in our guilty room and in our guilty stead. When the man slayer went home, if his estate had been forfeited, he had to get it back again. When the festivals came round again, he had liberty to participate again. It was as if the past had been wiped away. The past had been wiped away. And it's not what God does. God takes our past and he wipes it away. We start all over again. And I'm glad today God can take your past and he can wipe it clean. Not wonderful? That's what salvation is. Salvation is God taking our guilty past, our guilty sin, our, the guilt of our heart, and making it clean through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wiping it clean that you and I might be enabled to start living a new life. And you can do that today. This first weekend that we mark the passing of our dear Queen Elizabeth II. You can mark it as a time when you started to live a new life. A new life through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only did God devise the death of Christ to bring back the banished but the Bible tells us he sent the Holy Ghost into this world to win and to woo the lost. It is the Spirit of God who subdues the will. It is the Spirit of God who gives the new heart. It's the Spirit of God who effectively draws sinners to Jesus Christ. And as a congregation here today, so many, I know of so many 
fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ in the gathering today, were evidence, were evidence that the Spirit of God worked in our heart. I, I thank God in my own life. as a young teenager at 16 years of age. And before that, the Spirit of God worked in my heart and worked in my life and brought me to Christ. And he's not stopped working. And he's still working. And he's still molding and conforming and fashioning me into uh, the man that I ought to be for Jesus Christ. And I have no doubt, I have no doubt he's still working in your heart and in this gathering today. Because that's what he's pleased to do. Where the name of Christ is uplifted, where his word is proclaimed, he works. He moves. We often sing that lovely hymn. The second verse goes like this. Graciously he woos thee. Do not slight his call. Though thy sins are many, he'll forgive them all. Turn to him, repenting. He will cleanse thee now. He is waiting at thy heart. Why waitest thou? The suddenness of death took us all by surprise in the past week. You would think when someone is 96 <coughs> that you would nearly expect death to be close by. And yes, we knew Queen Elizabeth was frail and was old, but we thought she still had time. And you're a lot younger than Queen Elizabeth. And that's what you're thinking today. I still have time. I still have time. But you only have now. You only have this moment. To close in with Jesus Christ. There's no other guarantees. Will you be guaranteed tonight? No, I can't give you that guarantee. No one else, no one else could do it either. But I can't guarantee you now. If you come to him believing, he'll receive you now. I love those verses that in John's Gospel, chapter 6, Jesus said, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. I think this week we've all heard the echoes of eternity. They've been loud and clear across our land. May God speak above all of the paraphernalia of state funerals and all that will go in the next few days. May God speak personally and individually to you and bring you to firm ground, to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We must needs die. But God has devised means. He sent his son to bring back the banished from the foreign land. And he can do it today. If I can be of help to you today, speak to me. That's what we're here for. I'm always here after the service. That's what we're here for. Just say you'd like to have a word with me. And I'll wait. And we'll talk about the things of God and open the book of God and show you with assurance from the word of God how you can be saved and how you can be sure you're saved.